1: At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a special 273rd edition of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today we are remembering and celebrating David V. Picker one of the most influential film executives of the last 60 years, who died on Saturday night in New York at the age of 87 following a battle with colon cancer. David was a remarkable guy. In 1969, at the age of just 38, he became the president and COO of United Artists, the historic Hollywood studio, and he subsequently ran Paramount and Columbia as well. He was, over the course of his career, closely associated with five Best Picture Oscar winners, 1963's Tom Jones, 1969's Midnight Cowboy, 1977's Annie Hall, 1980's Ordinary People, and 1987's The Last Emperor. He brought James Bond, The Beatles, and Steve Martin to the movies, and he gave a start to many others who went on to great success behind the scenes of showbiz just like him, including Jeffrey Katzenberg, Tom Rothman, Larry Kramer, Mark Gordon, Lawrence Mark, Bonnie Arnold, and the late Jonathan Demi. After reading David's 2013 memoir, Musts, Maybes, and Nevers, a book about the movies, I decided that I had to meet and interview this fascinating man. I connected with David through a mutual friend, and he very kindly agreed to sit down with me at his apartment on New York's Upper West Side on April 1, 2016. But before we get to the audio, let me, on behalf of all of David's friends and fans, I'm sure, extend my condolences to his survivors. His sister, Jean Picker-Furstenberg, the former president and CEO of the American Film Institute. His wife, the photographer, Sandra Lynn Jedden-Picker. His first wife, Carol Schlossman, and his two children from that marriage, Karen Picker and Pamela Lee Picker. And his second wife, Nessa Hyams. As they know, and you soon will, we will not see David's like again. And now, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. To begin with, I just wonder if you can explain how the movies came to be the family business for the Picker family. Where did that start and what
1: preceded your entry into the business? My grandfather, after whom I was named, David V. Picker, uh, was in the textile business. And he went bankrupt in 1912. He had to declare bankruptcy. And people he owed money to forgave him a large part of his debt. And he said, well, if someday I ever make it back, and I will, you will hear from me. And he went, opened a theater, and then another theater, and then another theater, and eventually merged with his friend Marcus Lowe, and became part of Lowe's theaters. And don't hold me to this, 12 years, 14 years later, whatever, Mm -hmm. he sent checks for the forgiven debt plus 100% interest (laughs) to these people. And I have a book, which the, my grandson will, will have after sure. me, with the letters that he got back wow. from those days. And he had four sons, and they all went into business. My dad was the oldest. And your dad's role in the business, which you really got well, to he see he went into close. the theater in. Yes. He was uh, with Lowe's Theaters. He, uh, I grew up not interested in, I mean, obviously I understood theaters. Mm-hmm. I used to travel with my dad because he w- insisted that the Lowe's Theaters in New York be clean and well run and whatever. And I'd see a piece of a movie and then I'd get to the next theater and it would be 10 minutes later into the movie, you know. (laughs) But I grew up going around to the theaters with Dad and uh, his absolute and total insistence that the theaters be a safe and friendly environment. So it was a great way to grow up.
0: And I I read in your book, which I recommend to people, must maybes and nevers, that you really could kind of, you had a, a unique experience in that you could go into any movie theater in New York and because you were
1: Gene just, Picker's son, yes, yes right? you could well it was more than that you could see I mean, any movie though <laughs> yeah, I could see any movie and you could also park any place when you had a car like my dad did because there wasn't a cop in New York who wasn't getting passes to those <laughs> theaters, <laughs>
0: so
1: and because he drove around to the theaters two or three nights a week because he insisted that the 64 theaters that he ran in the city area be be run right. the way he wanted them. The car was well known.
0: What would you say was the, the became the focus of your interest in the movies? Because I was reading that you you were reading the trades as a kid. You were you know really into it. Well, I mean, you grow
1: up that way. It's the world we grew up in. Uh, you know, dad brought home the trade papers. The variety was the main one. And uh, I read him. And during the war, this is the Second World War, way before your time, <laughs> Los Theatres was one of the agencies that distributed 16 millimeter prints to the armed forces. And Dad wanted to make sure that the prints were in very good condition and everything else. So he'd bring them home and we had a 16 millimeter projector at home. And we'd see movies before they opened in the theaters at, at home on the 16 millimeter projector. Dad was so insistent that it be seen appropriately despite my mother's objection he cut two holes in the wall between the dining room and the foyer which led to the living room so he could put the projector into the dining room and you wouldn't hear it when you were watching it and you could cut from real to real with not much change right you know that's great. It was amazing. Wow. It was a, it was an amazing way to grow up.
0: So, was there ever any question that you yourself would get into the business in some way, or did you ever consider doing something else? Not for one second. <laughs> <laughs> Never. And, and and in terms of what that would specifically be, you sampled a lot
1: of things during college, right? Well, it wasn't. It was yeah, then summers and stuff like that. I, I knew one thing, and my dad understood it. I, I did want to go in the theater end because that was essentially just a, a you know. A means of exhibiting film. I was much more interested in the making and the distribution. And Dad had three brothers. They were all in the business. His youngest brother, Arnold, became the young partner in United Artists when Arthur Crimm and Bob Benjamin revived what was a stagnant company.
0: Well, can I stop you there because I want to. Nobody is more qualified to explain what happened in 1951 that led to United Artists turning over to different ownership and and just how that actually worked. So
1: can you share that? Well, the company had gone defunct, basically. I mean, it had run out of management. There were no ideas. It was a company that had licenses to a bunch of old movies. So, you know, there were people who were running it, but it was just there. And two young lawyers, Arthur Krim and Bob Benjamin, of the Phillips Neisser Benjamin Krim firm, decided that they had an idea that they would take this United Artists name And revive it and they looked around for several partners to join them uh, because they were lawyers and financial men and enlightened liberal human beings but they actually had never run a movie company and they looked around and they picked three men to join them and one of them was my uncle Arnold my dad's youngest brother who was like number two or three it, in hierarchy of Columbia Pictures Foreign Department. And uh, Arnold, despite my dad's warning him he may be taking a step that would be the end of his career, <laughs> decided to join UA as, as a partner. It was really amazing because, well, we're talking about, the late 40s, early 50s, Arnold understood something that the other companies literally did not understand. And what he did was he went out and he said to his partners i want to do local european filmmaking because if i have european filmmakers i'm going to get better playing time for my american product than if i don't and the majors in their understandable arrogance in a way mm-hmm. you know figured they had the american pictures and they could book them and arnold picker came up with this concept and ua started to fund European filmmakers, and suddenly, you know, we had Fellini and Truffaut and Louis Malle, and so we were getting better playing time for our American pictures, and literally blocked out a lot of the majors <laughs> from it. And I mean, the fact that when I was given the opportunity to, to replace my boss, Max Youngstein, who chose to leave and try and found his own United Artists, wow. and I was 28 or 29 years old, I was in Europe, had no idea that Max was planning to do this. And I get a phone call from Arthur Crimm and Bob Benjamin. They said, are you sitting down? I said, yeah, I'm sitting down. Why? And he said, well, because your boss is leaving. I said, what do you mean? Max has gone off and he's going to join another company. He feels that he should have a more active role. I said, well, that's just terrible. He says, yes, but we have some information for you. I said, what's that? You're going to replace him. <laughs> and just
0: working backwards, this was because you had started working at UA in January 56. Yeah.
1: And then Max had made me his assistant yes. and trained me. And I was 28 and a half years old. And he was in the, the marketing and publicity or advertising and publicity? Well, in those days, yes, it was, but he was also production. He was both. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. So I was 28 years old. I was in London and uh, they called me <laughs> and I was about to have a dinner. That I thought was really important about a project. Mm -hmm. And they said, uh, blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh my God. (laughs) I said, because I'm just about to go to have dinner with this filmmaker, a young Brit named Tony Richardson, (laughs) and he's got a project I'm really excited about. (laughs) He said, well, what is it? And I him it's based on an 18th century novel called (laughs) Tom Jones. And they said, well, call us after your meeting. And if you really want to make the deal, tell them that, you know, have to be a two-picture deal, and in those days you could make those, and you could cross collateralize the profits and the loss from one picture to the mm. other, and this way we'll have some protection. Right. So I went down. I was 28 years old, and I had this dinner with Tony Richardson, and I said, "Okay, we will fund this movie, Tom Jones." <laughs> <laughs> and the, yeah, I mean, it, it's a lost. Well, but so it, I, I it, do want to actually. It went from
0: there. Well, somebody, uh, <laughs> it's unbelievable, and I guess one thing though that we should talk about is what. Made United Artists different than the other studios at that time because just for people's timeline reference, I mean, the Supreme Court had made their decision that the bit majors had to get rid of their, rid of their yes, theaters, absolutely.
1: so they were having a little bit of a tumultuous time. Yeah, but they were in a different business okay. because they owned the studios. Right. They said yes or so they said no. They control the product, and Crimin and Benjamin's ideas was was, was a throwback. To what UA was when it was owned by Chaplin and Pickford. And they said, look, here's the, the philosophy. It's not very complicated. We develop the project, we approve the budget and the script. And as long as the filmmaker stays on budget, he has total control of that project. We will have no creative input beyond approving the content. If you go over budget, then obviously, whatever, whatever. And that was unheard of because the studio concept is you control everything. And so we were in a position to literally go to a filmmaker and say, okay, make movies for us. We'll approve this, that, and the other thing. Once it's approved, I'm assuming you stay on budget. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's yours. And I mean, it was something that was so alien to a studio thinking. That, uh, <laughs> and we, we literally could get any filmmaker we wanted. And they then with it. Arnold's input, that we could get better playing time if we had European films as well, something the studios couldn't even conceive of, Right, it just, it just exploded. So going backwards for a
0: second, before Max Youngstein, before any of that, how did it come to be that you were employed at United Artists, and then how did you wind up working under Max Youngstein? And-
1: well, I mean, I grew up driving around to theaters with my right, dad, right. so it was clear that I was going to go in the movie business. Yeah. I think dad probably was disappointed that I didn't want to go into the theater end. But each summer of my college years, I worked at a different company, and I worked at UA's publicity department for Mr. Youngstein. One summer, I worked at uh, Los Theaters one summer, whatever. Mm -hmm. And when at time, I I was drafted after I graduated college, served two years, and then I told my dad that uh, I loved him, but I wanted to go into my uncle's company. And I got a job in the advertising and publicity department, where I was like... Everybody knew my name because mm-hmm. one of the owners was this, right. my uncle. <laughs> but it was it was, a, it was a, an incredible company, and it, it encouraged people to think for themselves. And I guess I was 20 to 29 when Max decided that he would go form his own United Artists, and I was in London. And, and his own United Artists, meaning that he was going to just try to make it on his own? Well, he was going to look, yes. He was going to go get a couple of other uh, partners, which he uh-huh. did. Except Max was Max, and he wasn't an Arthur and Bob, and right. he didn't have Arnold. Right. And uh, sadly enough, it, it was a disaster. But I was in, in London on this trip, and Arthur and Krim and Bob Benjamin called me and right. said uh, Max is leaving. Now, your relationship
0: up, up to that point with Arthur and Bob had been, how would you characterize it?
1: Oh, it, it, UA... It, <laughs> When you worked on that level, you just walked into an office. You didn't even waste time to the secretary. I mean, it was a, a unique environment in which to work. You had total freedom to express yourself, to disagree, to agree, to propose, to consider. I mean, it, it's a concept the other companies simply didn't understand, if, if, if they even understood it. Right. But it was a fortuitous coming together right. of time, content... An opportunity.
0: And in the book, it's very clear that you had great respect for Arthur and Bob. Can you talk for a second about just who each of these guys were? We know they had been lawyers, but just why they were so impressive. Okay.
1: They were both short, (laughs) they were both extremely smart. And Mike Todd, because one of the first pictures that we picked up was around the world in 80 days. Uh, was famous within the industry then for saying, well, you know, I've dealt with these guys and I'll tell you, one of these guys is redundant. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> what he said was one of these sons of bitches is redundant. Right. But the fact is that they understood something that was beyond the studio's comprehension. And I happened to be in London when Max told them that he was leaving and I was about to have dinner with Tony Richardson mm-hmm. and I told them that there was this project that I really liked and right. I thought, it was blah, know, blah, blah. And they said, well, Okay. It's the first thing you're recommending, but make it a two-picture deal so you cross collateralize one against the other. Right. And a year and a half later, Tony was in Thailand, and I accepted the Academy Award for him, <laughs> which was pretty pretty quick. Yeah, uh, that. They, after I accepted that, they said from now on nobody except the actual person <laughs> can except get can the can accept. A. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, you mentioned that Around the World in Eighty Days was one of the first films released after you went to work at UA. Even just it was, that, yeah, I was uh,
1: there shoot. when I was in the summer that I worked there. Yeah.
0: So. My sense is that you learned some important lessons from Mike Todd just about how to be a showman.
1: Well, you yeah, you could learn it. Be able to do it is another thing. He threw a party for the opening of Around the World in 80 Days, which is at the Rivoli Theater, no longer in existence. It's a 1,000-seat house, not a giant house. At Madison Square Garden, invited everybody to come, got the circus to put on a show, (laughs) and sold Around the World in 80 Days. I mean, he was absolutely... And basically, though, this concept was that make it hard for people to see something they want to see. Oh, well, that was, yeah, no, that's another one, absolutely. I mean, that goes to all sorts of different things. I mean, right. it had to do with that concept was one I used too with the Hilt with Last Tango in Paris, mm-hmm. where the word was out that this was something really special. Right. And I said, well, here's the deal. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody is to see this movie. There will be no screenings. There will be absolutely nothing. There was one filmmaker, one writer whose work I respected, and that was Pauline kale Right. And I said, if you want to see the movie, I'll show it to you. But if you tell anybody, I <laughs> And I let her right. see the movie. She was the only public person mm-hmm. who saw the movie, and of course, There was this review, and there was
0: our campaign. Right. (laughs) Because this started with Around the World in 80 Days, and then there were so many Best Picture and Oscar movies that you guys worked on, including Tom Jones, as you mentioned, and then right through Midnight Cowboy and and many others later at Columbia, Last Emperor. But I want to ask you about United Artists and awards, because how important are they to the business model. You look at like a Harvey Weinstein or somebody today, and, and he did this podcast. And the sense was that awards are almost a way of getting publicity and raising the profile for a movie that you couldn't otherwise get. And so did you guys look at it in that way? Did you court it in the way that people court them today, trying to campaign for them?
1: Well, you want to get awards if you can get them. Right. I mean, the question is how you go about getting them. Right. Uh, Harvey is brilliant at it. I mean, he really is. And he really is what, you know, this, this generation or two's version of what UA was. I mean, because he's very smart. And he knows how to market. And he knows how to make it hard to see something that you really want to see. Because the harder you make it to want to see, the more you want to see it. Right. <laughs> so, you know, the idea that on Less Tango was to simply make it impossible to see.
0: But is, was there, you know, today literally there is a job called an awards consultant where it's a publicist whose full-time thing is to go after awards. Did you guys do anything to Court Academy members? Do you remember how well, it worked sure. in those days? We, uh,
1: it, it, I don't remember how it worked in yeah. those days, but did we want to get awards? Sure, that helps sell a movie. Mm-hmm. So you would do it any way you possibly can. Right. The fun part to me was if you can build up a desire to see something and make it hard to see it, it just builds the desire up more. Right. And as long as you don't take it to ridiculous proportions. Right. On the other hand, there are times when you want to capitalize on what is already established interest mm. and, you know, open a theater in 3,000 theaters at the same time.
0: So. Well, it was interesting because the sort of risque nature of Tom Jones led you guys to unveil that in an unconventional way, right,
1: starting in London with one little theater, one little theater. So how did that, how did that well, work? Well, it was the same idea. I mean, if there's something that you think people will be interested in seeing mm-hmm. and you make it hard for them to see it, mm-hmm. the more they want to see it.
0: But that was even more than that, wasn't it? You weren't going to be allowed to show that in, in too many other theaters.
1: Well, the, the British, yes. I, I don't have a clear exact memory of the British censorship, right. but we weren't about to give into it. Right. So what we did was we bought our own theater, well, this was Arnold. I mean, right. <laughs> he, he was brilliant. Right. He said, look, the rank organization who was the major chain are not going to jeopardize their relationship with the British industry. Mm-hmm. So let's buy a theater. So we did. We bought a small 300-seat right. theater. We opened Tom Jones. And what does somebody want to see the thing that they can't right. get to see? <laughs> and if you've only, if you've got four shows a day in a 300-seat theater right. in the city of London, Right. <laughs> Man, the lines
0: are going to be big. And they were. And just for the record, I think one of the interesting things, that was the first non-American movie to win the Best Picture Oscar since Hamlet 24 years earlier, and only the second ever. It was at a time when the British were sort of, largely thanks to you guys, really rising to prominence internationally more than they had necessarily before, right?
1: Well, you know, possibly. It, it, it's really hard to go back in perspective. All I knew was that I was lucky enough to be in a position to reach out to any filmmaker in the world that I wanted to, whether I could get him or not, right. he was, who knew. But I mean to me the Ingmar Bergman is the perfect story. I mm-hmm. mean, why would it be important for us to have Ingmar Bergman? It wasn't that his pictures were going to do millions of dollars. But if we had an arrangement with Ingmar Bergman and had his pictures in Europe, it was going to get better playing time for our American pictures than Warner Brothers or MGM, who didn't have Ingmar Bergman. And so I was given, you know, a green light, basically, and I went and met Ing- Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> and I said, Mr. Bergman, you know, we want to do movies with you, and this is the way it works. And he agreed. And you came away with Persona, and, and those a few others, too. And a so, few others, yeah. You know, so, I mean, and that having that picture in Sweden meant that. We got better playing time for James Bond. We got better playing time for Midnight for whatever. Right. I mean, it's just when you have something they want, you capitalize right. on it. And by having filmmakers who had the freedom that no other American company even could fathom. Right. <laughs> you mean you just approve the budget and they go off and you don't look at dailies? I said, no, we don't do anything. <laughs> we, when the, when they're ready to deliver the picture, that's it.
0: What's the downside to that model? Obviously, there's great upside, but sometimes you got burned, right? You just get a movie back that was garbage. Absolutely. Or over seriously
1: over budget. Okay. Yeah. But, but let me Most of the no time, There no guarantees No, 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 life, no, 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 no.
0: All right. I'm, I'm sure this is probably the subject you're least interested in talking about. But I have to ask you, how did you first learn about the existence of a character named James Bond?
1: I had a cousin, Nancy, who had a... Or that time I was married to a gentleman who was not with us anymore. And he said, uh, do you ever read these books? You should read these books, they're good. So I read the books and they were terrific. And I went after them and they were, Mr. Fleming is just not prepared to sell them. And I said, okay, so I uh, can't buy them, what good is it? And a few years later, a couple of years later maybe, I get a phone call that Cubby Broccoli is coming to New York and um, we've got a partner and they'd like to meet with you didn't tell me the subject matter, a man named Harry Saltzman. Bon. Covey is a well-known producer. He's spent his whole career with Columbia, with his partner there, and in war Harry and Covey. And he said, uh, we have the rights to James Bond. I said, excuse me? <laughs> you have the rights to James Bond? He said, how did you do We have the rights to James Bond. And I said, OK, we're, we're going to make a deal right now. <laughs> And in the back of my head, I kept saying, Cubby is an established producer, lovely man, very nice man. He's made pictures for 10 years for Columbia Pictures. Why (laughs) hasn't he made a deal with Columbia? Right. And we go through the terms, and he finishes, and he says, I have to make one phone call. Just take a second, it'll be fine. And I said, oh, shit. (laughs) He's calling Columbia. Right. Because how can they
0: You figured he was playing you guys against each other? Well,
1: in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's a business. Sure. Come on. <laughs> uh, you know, I've been played before. Right, right. And I've played before. Right. So okay. <laughs> So he goes out. It was the longest few minutes. Comes back in and he says, We have a deal. Right. You know, a few weeks later, everything's done. I said, Cubby, come on. Who did you call? And he said, Well, I well obviously I call Columbia. Mm-hmm and I forget the gentleman's name, mm-hmm. it's in the book, but right. he the head of production for right. Columbia in London, who was not there, he was out. Oh, that was the worst So thing he did. <laughs> he called his other friend there, uh, who was the head of sales internationally, Abe Montague, and he gets Abe on the phone and he says, listen Abe, I'm at UA, I submitted these to Columbia, turned them down, I can make this deal but my life has been with Columbia. I'm giving you this last chance. And he said, well, have you talked to, what's his name? And he said, well, he's not in. And he said, well, had he known about the projects? And Kobe says, yeah, he turned them down. And he says, well, if he turned them down, I guess we'll just turn him down. Yeah. Oh God. And he came back in. He said, "You got a deal." That well, was a very expen- a costly mistake for them. <laughs> well, yeah, we've we all make costly right, mistakes. Right, this right. happened to be a particularly egregious one. But you know. And the uh, deal, though, was that it was not just for one movie. Right. Oh, you'd never do that in <laughs> no. a series. So, no. I mean, it's. I mean, you you say one at a time. Right. We cross collateralized them in groups of two, which is I mean, it's t- detail. Right. But. No, the idea was there was a series. There was a, obviously a potential for a series of movies.
0: And you were thinking initially Hitchcock could direct them.
1: Oh, I'm sure his name came up, but yeah. it wasn't realistic. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, he would have demanded much too much money, control yeah. and whatever.
0: But at that time, just to contextualize it for people, I mean, today James Bond, everybody in the world knows the name. It's true. At that time, how how widely known were these books? Well, they were known.
1: Yeah. I mean, they, they were they were sellers. Yeah. Uh, they he hadn't sold the rights because he wasn't interested in selling rights at the time. But finally, they got around to doing it. So, you know, sometimes you step in it and sometimes you step out of it. Right. And Columbia made a mistake. (laughs) Listen, we've all made mistakes, (laughs) let
0: me tell you. So, I know it's probably a complex story, but just the essentials. How did you guys wind up casting Connery, then losing Connery, and then bringing him back? That was really your doing,
1: right? Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, casting Connery, was fortuitous. We looked at a lot of people. There were some reasonably well-established British actors who play the role, but we had to get somebody who would agree to do a series of movies. And there was nobody of sufficient stature that it made sense to reach for them. So we wanted to... It had to be somebody who had some history if we were going to use an a established person. And there were one or two whose names, I think, mm-hmm. were in the book. I don't remember them anymore. Mm-hmm. But it just seemed smarter to go with an unknown. And we did. Sean was one of the people that was considered. I'd never farthing to his name. He had a bit of a wrong accent, but he was smart. And uh, maybe the phrase the you know, the best of a not so hot group. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact is we chose to, to go with him. Right. And we made a multiple picture deal. He fulfilled his obligation. He was very good. And then we had to go somewhere else. And, of course, This is George Lazenby. George Lazenby. And it turned out to be a disaster.
0: Why was that just for context? What what was, he just couldn't compare to Connery? He just wasn't any,
1: I mean, with all, there was a perfectly nice man. It just didn't work. Yeah. I mean, it either works or it doesn't work. And so my bosses said to me, you got to get Sean. Get him back. Get him back. And uh, I knew him, of course, not well, but I knew him. and. I said, look, here's the deal on so we need you for one picture. We will make two additional pictures with you. This budget. You don't even have to tell us what they are. If you want to find, you want our input, great. But you have a firm commitment to make two personal movies showing Connery films if you will do one more picture for us. And he agreed.
0: But his major reservation, maybe the reason he, he didn't want to be he didn't want to be James Bond the rest of his life. But wasn't it also? I mean, not to Pick on them, but he'd had some bickering with Broccoli and Saltzman, right? Yeah, but that's,
1: you know, that kind of goes with the territory. I mean, it's uh, when you're getting into something that successful. Right. You know, he felt he wasn't treated as well as he should have been. And I think he was absolutely right. They treated him as if he was lucky to have the role.
0: And you were going to therefore renegotiate the contract so that he could feel a little. Well,
1: the only way I could get him back, I had to get him back for one picture. I right. said, and we knew each other, we liked each other, right. it was fine. We weren't intimate friends or anything. Right, right. But, and I said, look, it's, it's this is pure commerce. Yeah. You do one picture, we will do two pictures with you. And it of worked. you're choosing. Yeah. I don't care what they are. You can tell me if you want. We'll give you our input. This budget is fine. We actually did one, Woman of Straw, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he agreed. So I got him back. There you go. He saved the series.
0: Yes. And, I mean, can you believe that all these years later, it's still gone strong? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. One of your other responses. Sounds, sounds
1: almost like a movie.
0: Yes, exactly, and maybe one day. It seems like one of the, from what I gather, one of your other responsibilities at UA was overseeing United Artists Records and Music Publishing. Uh, yes. And maybe, first of all, you can explain what that was and why that was important to the company, but also how it led to
1: okay. your next big thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, when Krim and Benjamin took over UA and brought their partners in and started to make movies, they were totally focused on the movies. The publishing rights, the record rights, deals were made independently on each picture, and it was no big deal. Max Youngstein, the man who trained me to a certain extent, felt we were missing a serious beat here, that we should be in the record and music business. And he was absolutely right. The only problem was he was absolutely the worst person <laughs> to put us in that business. And he paid a, a heavy emotional price for it. He, he, got Arthur and Bob to agree that we form U.A. Records and UA, U.A. Music. And then he brought in his pals to deliver product, and it was terrible. It was really, Just bad really, music? Yeah, yeah, it was just, it wasn't commercial. It, yeah. was, it was favoritism. Right. It was, it was he had a hard-on for it, what can I tell you? <laughs> and so when he left, one of the responsibilities I was given was to reestablish that entity and so I said, you know, this is, we'll do this. I went out and brought in Mark Talmadge, who was a, had run serious Atlantic Records and stuff like that, to at least start the process. We brought in Don Costa to be our A&R guy. And I said to our staff, I said, listen, you know, if there's some music world group, anything that you think might be interesting or maybe movie we can connect with a soundtrack, let me know because we'd be interested. And in our London office, we had some executives. And one of them said, listen, um, there's this, this group in Liverpool called the Beatles. I think they've got some potential. They're interested in doing something. We can get co-publishing and we get soundtracks. And I said, fine. I just It was just like another thing Right. In, as the day goes on.
0: And did you hear any of that? Were oh, you no, able to hear no, any
1: of no, the music? No, 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 no. no, no, no way. Fine. Make a deal, get the music, get the publishing, get the soundtrack, we'll develop a script or two and see where it goes. Right. And then it happened. <laughs> and, I it, mean, it, yeah, wasn't, it wasn't even something the other people in the company were aware of. I mean, it was just a list of things on a piece of paper. Right. A, B, C, D, under B was Beatles. <laughs> and so suddenly, Shea she, she Stadium shows up, <laughs> and uh, I'm an author Bob's office and I said you know we got these guys what do you mean <laughs> I said we got these guys we have a three picture deal with them could they believe it sure I mean why I wouldn't lie but right, I mean right. the idea that we just got that lucky was just I mean it was just sheer it was trusting somebody's judgment right who had the position to say we can make a deal we can get co-publishing we can get soundtrack right and, uh, and Brian Epstein was their manager, and I met him, and I liked him a lot. He was an odd fellow, but he, I trusted him, and he trusted me, mm-hmm. and that's really all you need in the film business, trust, because it's better than a written word very often, mm-hmm. and he trusted me. So when I said, I want you guys to see a short, because the man who made that short is the man I think you should make a movie with, and the short was called Running, Jumping, Standing Still. I'd seen it, who knows where, but it, it was in my head. Yeah. And they saw it and they said, okay. And Dick came in and the rest is, is, the rest is history. So,
0: just to recap for folks who are keeping score at home, this was Richard Lester with Hard Day's Night, then a year later, Help, and then three years later, The Yellow
1: Submarine. Yeah, but that was, by that time, it was we. Ju- anything we could get from them because it was, it was, it was almost impossible. Just because their time was into yeah, their schedule. I mean, yeah. Brian was great, but I mean, there was only so much you could do. So, we wound up with the Yellow Submarine. But listen, we got hard days night, and we got help. Yeah, those movies were obviously very
0: successful. Was your what was your experience with those guys? Did you personally, you know, get to? I met him once or twice.
1: I, I'm looking at an amazing photo of you yeah. surrounded by them. Um, <laughs> the longest conversation I ever had. It was in the Bahamas where they went. We had a big screening for the governor of the Bahamas, which was the first time I actually met them. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget it. Went up to, I guess, Paul was the first one I said hello to. I said, congratulations. And he said, congratulations to you, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or was that John, I think, right? You One of them. But yeah,
1: yeah. And that was literally the longest conversation I ever had with <laughs> him. I mean, we were in different worlds, but they right. were... Brian lived up to his word. The yeah. boys, we, you know, I suggested something that worked.
0: Didn't he die mid-deal, right? Like, while they were fulfilling their
1: yeah, contract. Yeah, b- b- yes, but uh, but the gentleman who came in, whose name is out of my head for a mm-hmm, second, mm-hmm. uh, lived up to the deal. Lived up to. And when they couldn't do a last picture, we did the, you know, the... The cartoon, the,
0: but that actually worked out yeah, nicely, it worked right? Out, well, it was
1: better than nothing. right, it, right, it, it, right, better than nothing, that's right. for Sure.
0: So you're having all the success with with Bond movies and the Beatles movies, and then between the greatest story ever told in Hawaii, it all nearly went up in flames, uh, right? Oh
1: yeah, we had some <laughs> we had some tough ones, and uh, uh, we had you know, a difficult time for a while.
0: So personally, were you feeling that you're getting the appreciation and credit that you deserved for having made some of these great
1: discoveries at that uh, it, time it doesn't work that way it really doesn't I mean at least I don't I, you know right. I was doing this I was successful I got compensated in a manner in which I was was satisfied right and, and things change and you move on and right. life life goes on
0: so June 69 you're just 38, I believe, if my math is any good. I no, know. I was born
1: in 31, so whatever it okay, is. Okay, yeah,
0: I think so. So June 69, you become president of UA. Well, that must have been a big moment
1: for you, right? You know, UA was a very strange company. It was not like any other company. Hierarchically. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, the 14th floor is where the decisions were made. It didn't really make a lot of difference, nor was it known how they were made. We walked into each other's offices. It was it was just a sublime executive experience. Unique because I don't think any other company ever operated that way. Certainly not in our business. Right. But, you know, times change too. And people change and you move on. Well, the, the thing about
0: that time also that I found interesting going back and not only reading your book but all the articles from the time that I could find in <laughs> L.A. Times, New York Times, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, all of that, what was Sort of the, a pattern at that point was that young people like yourself were sort of being entrusted with massive responsibility at, at studios and operations that had up to that point always been run by older men. So all of a sudden, Dick Zanuck, Bob Evans, Jay Cantor, you, you guys are all in power. Do you, do you think this was part of, I mean, at the same time, by the way, just to remind people, the studio system itself is kind of transforming. The MPAA is replacing the the haze code so much was going on why were why was there this desire for
1: youth at the top of these operations I, I have to let the historians answer that yeah I mean it, you know it, it's life is full of changing patterns right and one something that is successful and somebody else thinks it's the way to go and it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't there's there's no accounting for the for that kind of stuff it was fortuitous it was exciting it was unique to be, you know, involved in that time right. and be able to accomplish those kinds of movies. I mean, there's no question in my mind that Midnight Cowboy would not have been made by anybody but you, and, and to be in a position to go to a John Schlesinger and mm-hmm. say, we want you to make a film for us. Right. What do you want to do? Right. It just is it's so antithetical to the studio way of thinking. We We control, we want multiple pictures. You know, we look at the dailies. I mean, we never—I swear to you—I cannot remember any film where we ever looked at dailies. We just <laughs> didn't.
0: We didn't. And it is—it is amazing how, as you say, some of these, some of the greatest movies that you guys did came out of just purely. All right, I, as speaking as you, all right, I want to work with John Schlesinger. I trust, based on his previous work, that he'll do a good job. And so, without necessarily totally. Grasping or buying into the idea of what
1: Midnight Cowboy. Oh, I'd I understood the idea of it. I mean, when John said, "This is what I want to do, and this is the, I want to develop this into a yeah. screenplay," I said, "Yes." Read the screenplay. I greenlit the movie. Right, but even if In you the disliked process, it,
0: would you have given? You would have trusted the filmmakers. To- chances
1: are, it would have had to be something I really didn't respond to right. to say. What I might have said, and I did in one or two occasions, but if you ask me what they are, I'm not sure I remember, make it the second picture. Right. You know, right. push it off. <laughs> Just do one, do something else first. Right. It's a way of operating in a motion picture industry that, A, had never happened before and certainly hasn't happened since. Mm-hmm. It was a unique time, and I was privileged to be part of it. And the filmmakers, you know, many of them were long gone now, understood it. And I mean, if you said to me, the moment that encapsulated all of it, Mm -hmm. nobody at the company had seen a foot of Midnight Cowboy. And when John said he was ready to show it to me, I said, well, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm just going to invite everybody to this screening. I don't care. The entire marketing, sales, executive, everybody. The whole works. It was the most amazing screening I've ever sat in. Ever. Movie comes on and movie ends. And I, I swear to you, I, I, it had to be two to three minutes of dead silence <laughs> because people were so stunned by what they just lived through. And then Arnold said the magic words, you know, it's a miracle or it's, a, right. it's whatever it is. It's in the book. Masterpiece. Master, it's again. a masterpiece. Yeah. Thank you. And Arnold, who was the tough guy and uh, I mean, not tough, ugly tough, right. but, but business oriented, right. only had one or two creative people he felt comfortable talking to. But it brilliant executive. And to hear Arnold, the foreign guy, say it's a masterpiece. It, and then, whew, <laughs> You it, could you, breathe. It, well, the whole room exploded. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, because then anybody could say anything. Right. And it was just, I mean, I, you know, my eyes fill thinking remembering that, that sure. moment. It was, uh, you know, it, it was such a privilege to be part of a company that enabled filmmakers to express themselves in a way that other companies wouldn't let them do so it was a, a special time
0: and we uh, also owe you a thank you for the raindrops keep falling on my head right the harry meals that was just a temp song
1: yeah uh, no it was it was it was a previously published song right and uh, they didn't have the money because they was a little over budget already right and so john said uh, you know we don't own that song i said what do you mean you don't have the rights he said no i, I mean i Get the rights, but it's we're a little over budget now, and I'm I'm making this up. He said it could be like $20,000. And I said, John, get
0: the rights. You know, it's it's, (laughs) just move on. Right. (laughs) One of the funny things in in the book was that you obviously had a very respectful, cordial relationship with the vast majority of people you dealt with, but it was pretty clear that there is no love lost for
1: Walter Marish. (laughs) Yeah, it's a strong word. The Marish Company was— three brothers from Milwaukee who had been ex- in the theater end of it and moved to California. And Harold Mirish who was the brains of the gang, was a lovely man who had no creative insight into film, but who had a canny ability to attract people to him. He was just he was a wonderful, wonderful human being. And then he had his two brothers with him. And Harold made that company by attracting filmmakers because he had the in, in, entree to UA, so it was like having our own little studio, there. Mm-hmm. And Walter was the younger brother, and you know, uh, Walter, with all due respect, is you know, was not in Harold's class, but Harold was, Harold was the best, absolutely the best. There's a funny thing in the book, which I, I love talking about. So mm-hmm. I'll say you don't yeah. have to use it, but Harold, loved entertaining celebrities. Uh, Even though he was a big movie producer and he had a home in Palm Springs and in the social world of Palm Springs the get was Truman Capote (laughs) And he was impossible. He wouldn't go to anybody's house and um, Harold said to me, you know Come spend a weekend in Palm Springs with us. And I said, oh great. I think I'll do that Give me a chance to see Truman He says you know Truman (laughs) I said yeah, I know Truman. We've been friends over the years occasional lunch he said, do you think he'd come to the house for dinner and a screening? I said, Harold, I have no idea. But he said, well, if you see him, would, would you invite him? I said, sure. So I, I called Truman. I said, I'm coming to Palm Springs. He says, well, come on, have a lunch. I said, so I go to Truman's. We have lunch. And we take it. He says, you got to swim. you got to swim in my pool. I said, OK, I'll swim in your pool. I don't swim. I barely I walk around in water. Right. And I, I get in the pool. It's great. Thank you. Bye. See you. Hi, Harold. How are you? David you see Truman? I said, yeah, I just had lunch with him. He said, you're kidding. I said, no, he was in the pool when he's, when I walked in. When down. you go to Harold, yeah. he's in the pool. And he's lying on his, you know, right. the, the floating thing. And I said, I'm going to come in the water with you there. He said, what do you mean? He said, I just want to come in. He said, okay, so how's Truman? I said, Harold, is this your pool water? He said, what do you mean? I said, this, Truman's water is so much better than <laughs> yours. And I made him crazy. Right. Did I finally opened it <laughs> yeah, up. This, I said, he did. Right. Harold, for Christ's sake, water's water. Right, right. Uh, Truman wasn't visiting Harold right. house for a screen. <laughs> that was great.
0: Now, it's amazing how many people started under you who have gone on to big things. And one of them was a person who, because you made it possible for him to work on a movie in England, brought back a movie that you ended up distributing called Women in Love, which ended up giving bringing Glenda Jackson her First of two Best Actress Oscars, so this was the Larry Kramer, right? But he was, like, basically an assistant,
1: right? Oh, yeah. I can't remember who recommended him to me, but he came to work with me. And I I just thought he was amazing, but he didn't belong in a movie company. I mean, it was the worst, last thing in the world. (laughs) And after, I guess, about six months or five months, I said, Larry, this is ridiculous. I just, you don't want to do this. He says, no. I said, "We, we, we, we want to write. I said, well, then go fucking right. Right. I mean, you know, leave me alone here. I mean, <laughs> so and, you know, to this day, I mean, uh, we stay friends and, and he's, I mean, his contribution to the world is- it's major. Totally yeah. Unbelievable. And he was, uh, he was special then, he's special now, and uh, he's always had a very, very, very particular place in my heart. Yeah.
0: Another person who's- Launch of of their career you were very responsible for Jeffrey Katzenberger. Well, Tom no, Rothman. we're gonna get to those guys. <laughs> but this was even okay. So this is somebody who he was he was already known to people, but not yet blown up. And that is Woody Allen. And so I wonder if you can talk about he at that at the time you guys first started working together, he'd already made only two films: What's Up, Tiger Lily, and Take the Money and Run. And you guys, I guess, you arrived. At a at an unusual sort of a multi-picture deal with him, and so can you talk about what that kind of a deal was and what some of the fruit it
1: bore was? Because it's amazing. This is what I remember. Yeah, I saw his movies. Yeah, you know, a couple of films. I said, "This this guy's great." I just got to. You should make movies for us. Right. right. And you know, you, I mean, to say there was a privilege is an understatement. I was able to obviously get anybody to talk to me and I went to Woody and I said come on make movies for us I mean you will have a great time and we leave you alone and and that's well, what wasn't the there, there was something though
0: with Sam Cohn saying we want a six picture deal where we can pitch you an idea and if you accept it then that's it it's just going to be Woody pitching you ideas and as a result bananas everything you ever want to know about sex but we're afraid to ask sleeper and then as you were leaving you a love and death and then I think that Deal must have completed because after you left Annie Hall, which was, which won
1: for them. So, but he was. What can you say about Woody Allen? I mean, he, there are talents that are versions of other talents modified in one way or another. There are very few talents that are to use what I consider the most misused word in the English language. And Sandy laughs every time. I know what you're going to say. Unique. Unique. You know. Every time I read in a newspaper like the New York Times, this person was very unique. <laughs> this person was rather unique. I, she hears me scream. Yeah. Because you either unique or you ain't. <laughs> there's no there's no modification in right, this word. Like, right. You know, I majored in English in college. Right. I understand this. Right. There was nobody like William. There hasn't wasn't before, and there never will he's be.
0: he's still churning out one a year.
1: He's who he's he is. He's going to open can in a month. He is who he is. It's amazing. And I just said to him, Please, yeah. Come on, just make whatever you want. Except the drama. You want
0: you like the comedy. I think yeah. they wanted to do uh, one time. Yeah, don't, <laughs> I said yeah. You, it could be the third
1: movie or the fourth. Right. Not the first. And it ended up years later being sweet and low down. Absolutely. But, but uh, you know, I mean, this—it's it, a business where so much of it is replicas. Right. There's well, just a few like movies. oh yeah, true original. They stand alone. Sure. I think that a lot of these are,
0: I'm not meaning to uh, give away the goods. I think this will hopefully titillate people to read the book. But I think another thing that I got a kick out of in the book was, again, you, you are, as people listening to this can tell, you're a gentleman, so it's very funny when somebody really does get under your skin that it brings out. You it takes a lot to irk you, it seems like. Which one? Who is so it? Robert Altman was a prick. Oh, yeah,
1: he, was. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was. He was a prick. Now, this started with the long goodbye? You know, he was an ungracious man. That's all. You know, I think I don't think there are a lot of rules. I really don't. And, you know, I think what makes filmmakers so interesting is they're no two alike. I do remember you now a bit of Altman. And we stretched f- for our filmmakers. And nobody has to go around thanking us. But there's a certain respect. And Altman had no respect. And uh, I I couldn't forgive him for it. And I don't forgive him for it. Yeah. I, I don't even know if he's still alive. No. Um, he, sadly, he's not. Yeah. Because he was a very interesting man. but yeah. But he was a miserable prick.
0: <laughs> now question I have about so you were always based in New York right or briefly in LA
1: well I served several sentences in LA In know L- <laughs> I served the sentence of when I ran Paramount and I think something else but I'm a New Yorker
0: because it seems that the art house boom in terms of theaters really happened in New York in
1: the 60s and well yeah right? but I mean that's just because of the geographical makeup I mean in LA you got one problem if you want to go from here to there what do you do get in a car you get in a car right and in New York doesn't um, present a problem, whatever, yeah. so it's a different. It, it's it's just different. I mean, it you have a different uh, lifestyle, right. you have to drive from here to there, otherwise you ain't getting there.
0: But how important were the Don Rugoff's and Dan Talbots and Walter Reed's in terms of movie the shaping the experience of the moviegoer in the starting in the pretty much? The I 60s?
1: don't. I don't think it was. Those people, I think it was the it was the fact that they had theaters there, Mm -hmm. they that they opened to non major commercial movies. Mm -hmm. Then some of us began to realize there was a way to utilize that to market some of those movies into big big movies, and they went along with it. Why not? I mean, it's um, you know, and then they became major players.
0: But it was because 20 years earlier, when the studios owned all the theaters you wouldn't have necessarily had a place to show all these European no, filmmakers, because right?
1: They, because the FGM played the Lowe's Theaters. Right. And because Warner Brothers and RKO played Warner Brothers and RKO Theaters. So it's fortunate that for a company like when the, yours... When the, when the government split yeah. in '49, it changed the whole thing. And so, but for, for
0: people like you who had the interest in, and ended up bringing over all these European filmmakers, the Fellinis, Truffauts, Mals, Leone, Bergman, all these guys, it was the
1: timing was important, right, because... Yeah, I mean, there were, there were outlets for it. For it. But the concept wasn't for that. Right. The concept was, if we make films with the best of the right. local fil- of the Indo- European filmmakers, right. we are going to get better playing time for our American pictures. If I control, control is not the right, but if I'm distributing and right. financing Fellini and whatever, right. if i got Bergman, right. I'm going to get better playing time in Stockholm or in Italy for my... Major product because I've got the product of the local filmmakers. But it was still important
0: to you that the movie make money domestically. Not necessarily. No, really? They
1: didn't have to, because none of those films were that expensive. Right. They had a European market if they worked. None of those films broke through domestically into big money. Right. I mean they played on the Maybe east it side. They tango played or whatever. Well yeah, one or two. Yeah. But but you know, the concept was by making and therefore, distributing films with major European filmmakers, we are going to get better playing time for our American product in those countries. Period. And the others, the majors didn't get it. They didn't get it. And Arnold Picker, who figured that out and gave me the, yeah. as one of the partners, gave me the impetus to say, go make deals with local filmmakers because whatever, whatever, whatever. I mean, why would I make a deal with Ingmar Bergman? I mean, so that, you know, you get a 12-week run at an East Side theater? No, because <laughs> by having Ingmar Bergman in Europe, I'm going to get much better playing time for That's the really American product.
0: Do you feel that it seems like the Americans, though, their interest in either independent-type movies and but particularly foreign-language movies really emerged after the war? Is it just that their minds have been
1: brought in by the, yeah, the war? The business changed. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I, you'd need a far wiser-headed mind to figure that out. But it, it everything evolves. Sure. You know, everything evolves. And in the pre-pre war, the studios were, in those days ran the owned the, the theaters too. So it was just a different right. world.
0: At the end of your contract in seventy four, you or 73, 74, you decided to contract with the, uh, with UA. Okay. You decided to walk away from being an executive and focus on producing, and you ended up with a nice arrangement with them to continue to do it for UA. What was it, though, that made you decide you'd rather focus on producing than being an executive? Was it just the the way the company, I guess the company had been acquired by Transamerica? Transamerica.
1: Yeah, I'd had some interesting experiences with Transamerica. There were some nice people there. I enjoyed it. But it was really hard to explain to Jack Beckett, who was the chairman of Transamerica, a very nice man, when I would go to Scottsdale, Arizona, as the head of one of their major subsidiaries, and be told to be prepared to deliver a business plan that would show a twenty percent increase in net profits over a five-year period annually, <laughs> and I remember Dana Levitt was the head of I think life insurance company and. In the far West. I'm not sure that's his name, but it was a <laughs> lovely man. Right. And um, I said, How frank can I be in this meeting? He said, No, you should be frank. Yeah, Jack's good. I said, Okay. I said, Jack, let me explain something to you. <laughs> You've acquired this company. Right. You've been terrific. You want me to give you a plan that shows a 20% increase in net profits over a five year period. I don't know the movies that I'm gonna be distributing two years from now. I can give you the numbers, but they're absolutely meaningless. Mm-hmm. Dan, he, he can give you numbers because he knows exactly how many people are gonna die in Arizona next year <laughs> and probably the year after. Right. And I said, respectfully, you bought this company, but you can't have rules for this company in a business that doesn't apply. And he, he never really, he was a very nice man, he really right. was and he was respectful, and they treated us all very well. He just didn't understand what they had done. And Why do you think it,
0: they got into it in the first I place? I have no
1: idea. Because it's bizarre, and I it changed actually, the company. I, yeah, I, I, maybe I did know then. I don't remember that I knew, right. but I certainly have no recollection of it. It, just, it was some bad financial advice that they got from somebody.
0: And ultimately, I guess that sort of friction is what so you 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 in seventy four left or seventy three seventy four left to become focused on producing for UA, but then not very long after Arthur and everybody else left as well because of Transamerica, right? To go do Orion. Yeah. Those movies that you produced independently, it seems like Lenny is the one that has had the
1: the longest life. Yeah, I, I, mean, I didn't have a lot of success, but I had some movies I really liked. Uh, I liked Juggernaut a lot, and uh, but Lenny, I loved Lenny. Yeah. And, um, and smile. And smile, well, needless to say. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get things right, sometimes you get them wrong, sometimes you get lucky. But Lenny, to me, was Bob Fosse. And the privilege of working with Bob Fosse, I'd have to say amongst all the filmmakers that I've ever known, he was the one that I have most respect and the most admiration and the most wonder about. Wow. Because he was special. I do you know, get corny about it.
0: We just had, a, about a week ago, Joel Gray did the podcast, and Joel Gray was saying that he did not get along at all with Fossey during Cabaret. Fossey didn't even want him. They were going to put Ruth Gordon, apparently, as the MC. But in spite of his personal clashes with Bob Fosse, he still said he, he has to acknowledge he's an absolute master. And I think that seems to be what you're saying as well. Working with Fossey was just
1: a, a privilege, that's all I can say. Yeah. I mean, he was... He still takes my breath away. Wow. Paramount, how did you
0: come to be president of production there in
1: 76,
0: and what was it like, A, working with Barry Diller, and B, essentially grooming your successor, uh, Michael Eisner? Is that, is that a weird, did, did
1: you realize that was what was happening? In a way, I, I was. Uh, I did. I liked Barry a lot. Um, he was a complicated man. We had differences. And I have a letter, which I've kept private, most of the time, for a long time, that, you know, I was brought up understanding how to run a company in a different way. And sometimes, you know, you're, you can adopt. Sometimes it doesn't work so well. And I think the thing about Barry was that we agreed that it just didn't, we just didn't come from the same business.
0: Can I interject just that it seems like he was focused on stars, you were focused
1: on directors and and scripts maybe I, I you know the answer is i had led my career in terms of product and everything a certain way yeah and barry analyzed things differently mm-hmm. and we had to acknowledge that there was a difference right and it was but it was treated respectfully right. uh and uh i've always respected him for that
0: and eisner that was somebody that you did you were you impressed by or was it we're different types yeah
1: I have nothing bad to say about Michael, we're just different. Right. He's very smart, he's very successful, and uh, I'm reasonably smart and reasonably successful, (laughs) and uh, we are who we are. Right. And here's
0: where I'm going to go to what you referred to earlier, but you had a young assistant when you, that you brought on when you went to Paramount, and he's gone on to do a few things. A couple of things.
1: This was Jeffrey Uh, Katzman. Yeah, well I met Jeffrey when I was helping John Lindsay in one of his campaigns. And I was introduced to Jeffrey, who was 23 or 24 years old, and who it was absolutely and totally and clearly apparent to me was going to succeed at whatever he chose to do. I rarely said that about anybody. (laughs) But it was just very clear that Jeffrey was going to succeed. And any way I could help him, I wanted to. And I did. And so for a while, he was your assistant, but then he... Assistant and moved on. And that yeah. uh, I mean, this in a very positive way. Jeffrey knew how to deal with what was best for the company he was working with and for himself mm-hmm. in a very positive way. And he was brilliant at it, and he is brilliant at it. And uh, I have enormous respect for it.
0: And also in a positive way, but... I think it's accurate, it's sort of an obsessive guy,
1: right? Well... Or all yeah, all know, focused. All of us are obsessive in our business yeah. in some way or yeah, another. Yeah. And for is his, but he's, yeah, he's a brilliant, brilliant human being.
0: What are some of the considerations that one has to make when deciding whether to acquire or greenlight something? I mean, you bring up an example <laughs> in here, like Greece, where you did not like the stage play and yet you acquired it.
1: Yeah, well, because... And it was right, but it Yeah, was- because it didn't happen to be my particular taste. but. I understood what its commercial potential might be. I mean, you know, everything you do when you're making movies Mm -hmm. is not necessarily something that you like as such a silly word, but, uh, you know, you do something that you think can work commercially or you think you can do something work artistically, or in some cases, artistically and commercially. And, you know, it was clear that Greece could obviously be a very successful motion picture.
0: And what was it that gave you the faith in Robert Redford to believe that he could direct the movie for the first time, which he did with Ordinary People, because of you?
1: You know, you get to know somebody a little bit, and you have instincts about them. I'm, we've been talking for half an hour. I have instincts about you, and you probably about me. Hopefully, um, not too bad. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, no, no, no. Uh, you know, and he just struck me as someone you would you you could trust. Right. That didn't mean it was always going to be successful. Right. You've got to understand, it, it, there's not a direct line from trusting and success. Right. Believing in somebody and it's always going to turn out right. It, it, that's not the rule. The rule is if you trust somebody or if you believe in somebody, they get an opportunity to right. do something. That's it. <laughs> what, how it turns out, it can be fortuitous, it can be sad, right. uh, whatever. But it wasn't about setting any rules about it. You respond to somebody, you give them the opportunity, and then they do with it what they do.
0: Were you still at, I guess it was Paramount, when Ordinary People won the Oscar? The reason I ask is that I I know that one of the things that may have left a little bit of a, a bad taste in your mouth about the Paramount experience was that so much of what you started went on to be very successful, but after you were already out. Do you
1: want to be happy in life? You can't worry about those things. Yeah, And I don't, I really don't. I might have an occasional irritation right. or an occasional positive response because somebody does something right. nice, but you know, you got to move on. If you don't, you're going to be a really unhappy person. <laughs> and I absolutely refuse to be an unhappy person. Absolutely. One the movie
0: that I think you say in your book that you are Particularly proud of, and and not only the movie, but just the relationship, is the jerk with Steve Martin, and I think that it was sort of the beginning of a special, important relationship for you. Can you talk about why you believed in Steve Martin? It seemed like when many
1: others did not. Well, I don't think it was about many others did not at all. I had a friend named Bill McEwen who was a manager, talent manager. And he said to me, one day, I'm representing a young kid who's a comic, and uh, he's performing in the valley, and would you come see him? I said, sure, was that a guy named Steve Martin? I said, sure. And I went to the valley, and I saw, for the first time, this this young comedian. And he did something that I'd never seen before, and I just was dumbstruck by it. I mean, he did, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes, and he finished. and. People kept applauding, and he said, okay, everybody follow me. <laughs> and he walked out of the nightclub. Everybody followed him out, and he did another 30 minutes on the street. And, you know, I grew up watching comics. I mean, my folks went to the Copacabana when I was 13 and would take me down the back stairs. And I, I grew up watching comics and show business. I'd never seen <laughs> a comic like this. White, Gentile, well-spoken, And hilarious, and I said, you know, to Bill, this is, this is it, and you know, I was lucky enough to work out an arrangement where we worked together, and the rest speaks for itself. I mean, the man is a brilliant man, and what's really interesting about Steve, and was true then, as well as now, before anybody knew who he was. But we, you know, we started the relationship, Mm -hmm. and he was in the city. And It was a Saturday or something, and he said, you want to take a walk with me? I said, sure. Where are we going? He said, well, I, I like to walk through the art galleries. I said, sure. Now, here was somebody nobody knew, really. He walked into every gallery, knew the artists. They nodded to him. They weren't sure who he was, but he, they'd seen him there. His love of art wow. was something that he, he had way before he became the success that he's become. Wow. And he's just a really, really interesting intelligent to say the least Hmm. man with a brilliant comic sense and so when you know we agreed to work together i had to find someone into whose hands i could trust and that's why i suggested carl yeah and the making of the jerk was one of the great experiences just it was he just couldn't wait (laughs) every morning and the the big challenge of the day was we would meet in carl's trailer this is carl reiner carl reiner sorry yeah carl reiner and we would alternate making breakfasts. Steve would make it one day, I would make it, and we would challenge to outdo the other <laughs> in, a, in a little kitchen in a trailer. Right. But I mean, it was just—it was just a delight. That's and, great. And and he's become a legend. Still
0: gone strong. I, I'm looking forward to seeing the. He's got a Broadway show now, I, I guess. So um,
1: he's something. So and, but it. but he is such a well-rounded mm-hmm. intellect. I mean, he really is culturally. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, and, uh, he's, and he's a gentleman.
0: After Paramount, you were at Lorimar, and I wonder—is that different than running a major studio? Do you compare? Is that what's the difference between working at a place like that and working at a major studio?
1: <laughs> it's a big difference. Big difference? yeah. Yeah, you know, th- 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 I have to be admit admit that my Lorimar days are very fuzzy. Yeah, th- th- it wasn't it wasn't successful. It didn't work. I don't even remember what we did there, to be honest with you. You know, I'm sure we invested in a couple of movies that were interesting and worthwhile. I don't know why Merv and his partner decided to even go in the business, mm-hmm. but it, it was not a permanent situation.
0: Was being there part of that time? And you had actually given
1: Hal Ashby his first opportunity to direct. Well, he, Hal is one of the great sad stories because he was undoubtedly, I say this rarely, a unique talent. -hmm. Uh, He was also a very sad man because he was a drug addict, Mm -hmm. and he eventually killed himself, basically. But a brilliant editor, a brilliant mind, brilliant. And I I think of the people with whom I worked. The one of whom I'm saddest about that that, that that his well that his his obsessiveness conquered his art. That's very sad. The
0: last of the studios I've got to ask you about is, of course, Columbia, because when you <laughs> took over in 85 with David Putnam, had you thought you're done with doing this kind of thing? You- yeah,
1: yeah, and I should have stayed
0: done. <laughs> Why do you say that? Uh, no, it,
1: it, look, you know, it was fun for a while.
0: And sometimes you get when you become a studio head, you get credit for things that had maybe been started before you also you can get the hangover without the drink which is what happened there for you right well
1: i mean ishtar oh yeah well yeah but everybody knows we inherited that but then you know i had the, i had the unique pleasure of working with the man i probably disliked as much as anybody i had ever worked with <laughs> bill cosby ah so you know it was you get every one of these jobs you get the highlights right. you get the low lights right. and uh Could you believe, I
0: mean, at that, I know you from the book that you disliked Cosby and he was a jerk and, and passed off blame for, but, but did you ever imagine that, that it was gonna, that something like what's come out could have happened? No, but
1: you don't, you don't think in those terms with Cosby, it's really simple. This is a man who was paid by a previous management Mm -hmm. that I inherited over $5 million, I think it was like 6 but it could be 5 Whatever it is, it mm-hmm. would multi-million dollars mm-hmm. to write, produce, and direct, and star in a movie called Let It Part 6. I inherited the movie. Movie had problems. I worked with Cosby, did the best we could to make it as good as possible. Right. It wasn't very good. Then Cosby went out and told his audience not to go see the movie. OK, he has the right to do that, but he didn't give us back the million doll- $5 right. million dollars that he got paid for. Right. So. My respect for whatever level I had for him obviously disappeared. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the business is filled with people of rare quality and rare contribution. And it's filled with people whose contributions are not as rare. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's it's like life. It's, it's right. It really is.
0: If there was a highlight of your Columbia time, would it have been The Last Emperor? You reunited with Bertolucci after all those years? Yeah, but I don't remember
1: the Columbia years that well. Really, yeah? Yeah. it's, it's Just repressed? <laughs> well, it, just forgotten. Yeah. Not repressed. Yeah. It's just over. Yeah. Let's move on. But I mean, it's but kind I'm of... I'm still friendly with David and Patsy and Putnam, and, you know, I mean, it, th- that never changed. It really is amazing,
0: though, when you think about, and I know that the Oscars are not the be-all, end-all, they often get it wrong, but nevertheless, the Oscar-winning movies that you've had a, a, a hand in, in one way or another, to one degree or another, starting... I mean, I, I know you wouldn't probably say this was much your movie, but Around the World in 80 Days, then Tom Jones, then Midnight Cowboy, then Ordinary People, then Last Emperor—it's incredible. And I don't know if anybody has that many numbers. I know UA itself, as a company, had an incredible number. I'm a lucky guy. Lucky guy. In the home stretch here, if you don't mind, I just got to go over a few uh, few more things. So you've been very self-deprecating about your decision-making process. You say in the book, "quote." If I had made all the projects I turned down and turned down all the projects I had made, I would probably would have had the same number of hits and flops.
1: I said that because there's a lot of people who have been in positions, perhaps like I have who tend to take themselves too seriously, and I just thought it was an easy way of pointing it out. <laughs> right.
0: A few that got away, just a sentence or two about maybe what happened and and you know some of them were. Uh, beyond your control. but do you have a list of them? I do.
1: Oh, so here please we go. <laughs> I, I've probably managed to block them. Yes. Uh, all right. What so would they be? Number one, Bonnie and Clyde. There was a reason on that, and I don't remember what it is, but I sure wish I had it. Yeah. Planet of the Apes. Ah, uh, yes. You Bonnie. wanted to do that. Yes, I did. And I can remember it very well. <laughs> and my boss said, uh, who wants to see a movie about a lot of monkeys? <laughs> And that was the end of that
0: by the way, about that, just a side note what do you what can you say about Arthur Jacobs because he had been what a kind of a unusual character right to be a publicist and go
1: into producing did yeah, you he, Arthur was a I liked Arthur he was a, he was enormous energy you know he really did he was and he, and when you come from publicity in those days and now i'm sure it's not different you take on certain distinctly pushy <laughs> Aspects, But Arthur was always, uh, I always liked him. I, I, he, he was one of the few, quote, quote, no, that's not fair. They were a whole bunch. Lois Smith, I loved her. Mm-hmm. Public, but publicists are tough. They, I mean, that's a tough job.
0: American Graffiti and Star Wars kind of tied together, right?
1: Oh, uh, well, you know, every time I see George Lucas, he says to me, you could have had Star Wars. <laughs> the irony, of course, is that I gave the script to my partners. To, and I said, I think this is a, this was American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Yeah. And I said, I, I think this is a talented young man. I'm getting on a plane. I'm going to Cannes. I'd like to make the deal. And I got to Cannes. I called them. And they'd read the script. And they said, it's not about anything. And I you know, I, I told them, well, I really thought it was. But the problem was they said yes to so much of what I wanted that if occasionally they didn't want to, I just couldn't push it because... Right. I pushed them enough times where I got it. And in this case, the irony, and I, George, I say this whenever I see George, mm-hmm. had I made American Graffiti, the odds that I would have greenlit Star Wars are almost less than nothing. <laughs> because the one genre that if you look at my whole history, right. you'll never find is science fiction. Right. I never got it. I never enjoyed it <laughs> until George you know, made Star Wars. Right. And I guarantee you I would have thanked him very much, and said, "Now you can take it someplace else. <laughs> so uh, either way, I didn't get it.
0: Right. <laughs> Officer and gentleman, that seemed to have gone away for, for the silliest of
1: reasons. Yeah, about I can't quite read. Oh, I know. Government why. approval. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I was, it was Merv Adelson. Yeah. Uh, and Merv and his partner Irwin, somebody, did a lot of Las Vegas deals and stuff right. like that. And he just didn't want to do something where he had to go to the government to get an OK. I said, I can't make this picture without cooperation. It would really be hard, and you just wouldn't bring it. Wow.
0: You move on. Last of this list is The Lord of the Rings, which you got for UA, but it then got away from UA eventually, right? Well, I may
1: have gotten it. I don't remember what the circumstances were, but again, it would never have been my kind of material. Not your cup of
0: tea, yeah. Okay. The last three things are, are big picture. How do you feel about the recent Controversy over diversity in the academy and how the academy has responded to this controversy?
1: That's a tough question. Um, I mean, I think clearly things clearly have to improve, let me put it that way. I, on the other hand, have always operated on my own yardstick, but the world is changing and appearances seem to me now as important as reality. And I think, you know, work has got to be done. On the other hand, I don't think you can mandate it. It's it's gotta be something that unless it comes from the desire to really do something, it's gonna be meaningless. And I think you've gotta find ways, I think, and uh, hopefully the Academy can work on this, to do things that people really wanna do.
0: There's a lot of people that are upset this notion that somebody who's retired (laughs) might lose their voting privileges or something, because the assumption, therefore, seems to be that If you're an older white person, you must be racist. That's the reason you raise your hand. But, I mean, does that irk you as well? Because that seems to be the common reaction. Well,
1: you know, the world is, the way these things are dealt with, quite different. And there's no question there have been, I think, unfortunate aspects of the whole history of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the best way to deal with it, but it's not something I can solve. Sure. And I wish them all well because they should be solved.
0: Yeah. What do you make of the state of artist-centric indie filmmaking today? It seems like, on the one hand, there's discouraging things like James Seamus or somebody leaving Focus, where it was a, a vision. On the other hand, you look at Netflix, and it really is doing what you guys used to do at UA and giving total creative freedom to the artist.
1: I'd be surprised if there wasn't a continuing way for people to express themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the various directional opportunities are such that never existed before. is a little easy, but I do believe 95% that those who have the ability and the drive to find a way will find a way. They will find someone who helps them find the way. I think it's hard to mandate it because mandating doesn't guarantee quality or even opportunity. On the other hand, there's no question that where there is resistance to opportunity, things should be done. I mean, there should be opportunities for everybody, maybe except us old folks.
0: <laughs> well, the last question is, if someone called you today, if the phone rang right now and somebody said, Mr. Picker, we're in trouble here in, in Hollywood uh, at our studio, would you come come save us, take over the reins one more time? What would, what would your response be? My marriage is far more important than the job. <laughs> and it would be one or the other <laughs> probably <laughs> at that point. Well, anyway, thank you very much for this. I really, it's a treat to get to My speak pleasure, with you. My pleasure,
1: and thank you for the inquiries.
0: Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg, and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere.